This is Epix Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me in the studio today is none other than Dr Mark Houston, a cardiologist of great renown. Mark is Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine at Vanderbilt Uni School of Medicine. He's the Director of the Hypertension Institute of Vascular Biology and also the Director of Nutrition at St Thomas Hospital in Tennessee. So Mark, I welcome you warmly. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Mark, first I'd like to get an idea of your history. You're a cardiologist. What piqued your interest to say there's something more going on here than the normal things that we were taught in medical school? I realized that um, most of the people who were um, being treated for coronary heart disease, who'd had myocardial infarctions, bypass grafting, stents and everything, they were just having issues with restenosis or recurrence of their disease, even though they had really good numbers. I mean, by normal LDL levels, good blood pressure, good blood sugars, they were losing weight, they were eating right. And I said, we're missing something. Something's not being measured. <clears throat> and so I started looking into the literature, and I realized that we were not addressing all of the risk factors that we even knew about correctly. Hmm and we weren't even addressing another 395 that we didn't even address at all. So, you know, if we go back in history, there was a time where they only measured total cholesterol because that's all they could. Then they discovered, oh, hang on, there's these fractions of cholesterol or lipoproteins, really. Um, and then they said, well, let's finally look at the LDL and the HDL and the VLDL and the ILDL, um, mainly looking at the HDL and the LDL particles. And then that evolved into the subfractions of each of each moiety. So was there a great resistance in the initial um, development of, oh hang on, we've got to look at high density and low density? Was that same resistance there that we're seeing now with the particle size? Yeah, we, we've gone through an incredible transformation. Uh, we're, the, the entire field of lipidology is in flux. And uh, we've gone from, as you say, total cholesterol, then went to LDL and HDL, and now we've gone to the subfractions of each of those, and now that's even gotten more complicated looking at modifications of those, mm -hmm. dysfunctionality of the HDL. So the, the entire field is in flux, and I think that we are beginning to realize we really don't know much about lipidology compared to what we thought we knew. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the whole field with advanced lipid testing is evolving, and that's going to create another whole field because when we get into that, we're going to realize there's a lot of stuff that we don't know about that, and that's going to create another whole level of, of concern. Mm. So I, I think we're just on the, like I said, on the precipice of understanding not just CVD, but understanding lipidology. Yeah, um, and to move on from that, you know, there was the the gainsayers of any usefulness of, of lipid particle size will say, well, the Epic Norfolk trial looked at this and they said there's no real effect when you you know, regress the, when you analyze, analyze it down. Um, and yet just recently, um, uh, February 2014, um, the author, the first author was Grammar, um, published in the European Heart Journal. They looked at particle size and they said, no, there's, there's definitely a call for this. So now you're saying it's got to do with dysfunctionality of these particle sizes and also modification. Tell me more about Yeah, if you look, look at the LDL story, for example, <clears throat> the driving risk for coronary heart disease and MI is LDL particle number. Hmm. Now, if your particle number is elevated, the particle size is also a confounding variable. Yeah. So they're both important. Right. 
But if you drive the particle size, excuse me, the particle number down to a really low level, the particle size loses its ability to predict coronary heart disease. Right. The particle number never loses its predictability. It's always number one no matter what you do. But within the LDL story, there's the functionality of the LDL. By that I mean it's modified. You know, it's, it's changed by inflammation and oxidative stress. So the oxidized form, the acetylated form, the glycated form actually become the foreign type of LDL. Yeah. So LDL in its native form is really not even atherogenic, yeah. whether it's big or small. Uh, it just turns out that the little ones are more likely to become modified than the big ones. Right. But even the big ones can be atherogenic under certain circumstances, like inflammation. Okay. So when you're talking about particle number then, is that the same as looking at just LDL? No. No, totally different. <clears throat> if you look at total LDL, you cannot predict anything in my opinion, about risk, nor can you predict what the treatment is going to do and you know how far you need to drive the LDL down. Yeah. So total levels, no matter where you're looking at, HDL or LDL, to my, to my reading, are non-useful information. <laughs> well, you, you know, you, that's basically we've got the 40% residual risk. Yeah. But when you look at that and they say, well, the proponents of looking of normal lipoprotein levels will say, well, what we have to do is drive down these levels even further. So they're calling for lower levels of LDL, as you'd be aware. What do you say to your peers? What do you say to them to say, hang on, there's another story here? Well, the problem is all of those studies are based on total LDL levels. And um, what we found is if you get the LDL particle number down, depending on the lab, we use one that uh, gets it down about 700, that's where the risk becomes pretty flat. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's not the whole story. You know, it's, it's what happens to the particles, how they change, and also the cleanup crew, which is HDL, is, is it functional? So it's, it's way more complicated than just looking at LDL. Yeah. And if you start saying, well, we're going to drive the LDL down to the enormously low levels, you're going to start interfering with all kinds of biochemical pathways. Mm. And there's going to be long-term problems with that. You know, you're going to have changes in vitamin D levels, steroid hormones. I mean, all these things that are downstream that you have to have. I mean, we have LDL for yeah. a good reason. For a good reason, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and uh, one of the initial um, theories of the function of LDL was that it's actually a healer. It's actually trying to get rid of inflammation. Can you explain this? Absolutely. That's a very good point, actually, and, and uh, <clears throat> didn't have time to really cover that today in our, in our conference, but uh, LDL is actually a protective defense mechanism. It's, it's actually uh, part of your innate immune system. Yeah. So, for example, if, if you're infected with uh, a virus uh, or a bacteria, one of the first responses is LDL try to contain the infection. And, and it will take it, incorporate it into the LDL. So the, the polysaccharide code of the bacteria is incorporated into the LDL. Mm -hmm. And the LDL then goes to the liver and tries to get rid of the infection or whatever it is. And the problem is, while it's doing all that, <clears throat> it becomes uh, altered, becomes oxidized, it becomes uh, glycated or whatever. And then the body sees the particle as a foreign protein. And so unless it gets out of the system somehow, if it's still floating around, yeah, yeah. then it's going to become a foreign antigen. The body's going to start attacking the LDL, or the LDL is going to create a secondary inflammatory response uh, over and above the first one. So what, what I was saying today in the conference is that LDL is not the bad guy. Mm. LDL is 
trying to protect you, but it becomes part of the damage and your vascular system becomes the innocent bystander is part of the modification of your LDL cholesterol. So it's kind of like a post-traumatic stress disorder of lipoproteins. Yeah, that's <laughs> probably yeah, a very good way to put it, actually. Yeah. So um, many around the world are uh, calling for a rethink um, of BMI as a measure of lean body mass. What simple tests do you advocate to, to say, let's look at your body composition? There's a lot of things you can do. BMI, as you know, misses uh, people who have uh, a lot of lean muscle mass over predicts their body BMI. So we typically use waist circumference, waist hip ratio, but even that's fraught with problems. Mm -hmm. The really best is to do BIA, body impedance analysis, and actually measure their percent body fat yeah. and their visceral fat. That's the most accurate. And is there any, uh, I understand there's a few machines on the market. Do you, there's a 12 channel one, is that right? Or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's several ones. Right. They're, they're, you know, as long as you have a good machine, it only takes, you know, one minute to get a good analysis of the total fat, and it regionalizes it as well. Oh, okay, brilliant. I remember a talk back in 2004 that you gave at the Institute of Functional Medicine on diabetes, obesity, and insulin resistance, and it really piqued my interest, interest that we should be doing more with regards to fasting glucose and, and looking at the acceptable levels, which you discussed today in the um, Biocytical Symposium. Can you tell me a little bit more about where we're going from with that and what changes you see when you achieve those targets of a, of a lower fasting glucose? We, we've really mystified uh, dysglycemia in, in, in every lab. By the time your blood sugar is in the high normal range, you've already lost a lot of your insulin production. Mm. So you've got to back it up. They say, what's really a normal fasting blood sugar? It's somewhere around 75 to 80 milligram per deciliter. Uh, you can convert that into the metric system. But <laughs> I have a conversion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, so that's, that's the story on, on, on that. But uh, for example, in the United States, um, our upper limit for uh, fasting blood sugar is 99. Right. Okay, so point is, if you're at 99, you're already at risk for cardiovascular disease. And it's a one-to-one -one ratio. It's a one point on your milligram per deciliter per 1% increase in risk for myocardial infarction. So if you're at 100, you're almost 20, 25% greater risk for having a heart attack. Mm. Now, if you do a postprandial blood sugar or a two-hour glucose tolerance test, it's even worse. Yeah. It now becomes a two-to-one ratio. And so the, the earliest markers for dysglycemia are adiponectin. And then the next thing that happens is your insulin levels start to go up but your blood sugar remains fairly normal. Yeah. And then once your insulin can't keep up, the blood sugar goes up. And that's, that's when you've already progressed pretty far. Yeah. So the time you have fasting dysglycemia, you've already lost probably 25, 30% of your insulin function. And now, so now, uh, is that, do you ever measure like C-peptide? I do, I measure C-peptide, pro-insulin, insulin, dipinectin, fasting and postprandial glucose pretty routinely depending on kind of where they are on the curve. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a very good idea of, of how bad they are and how far they've progressed. I should tell the listeners that I found a conversion for um, US <laughs> to Australian <laughs> levels. So um, at, at 80 milligrams per deciliter, that's around about 4.4 millimoles per liter. And the 95 milligrams per deciliter was, I think it was 5.6 millimoles per liter. So if you, if you take that to an Australian thing, we, I think what we've got to have um, point out is that this is a fasting glucose level. Yes. This is not a just doing a, a glucometer reading just after a meal or anything where 
you know, it can go up to six um, quite happily without that. So I just um, caution the, the listeners that um, this is a fasting glucose level. And do remember that <clears throat> there is a discrepancy between fasting and postprandial. Some people can be oh. out of range on one but not the other. Yeah. So it's really important to do both. Okay. Is this where the um, uh, glycemic clamp? Euglycemic well, that's, that's research-oriented. Right. The, the HOMA clamp is, is research. You typically don't do that, you know, in your clinical practice. Okay, so let's um, move on to dietary intervention because this is really where, you know, if we think about the causes of it, a lot of it comes from that and sedentary lifestyle. Um, now, in your book, What Your Doctor May Not Tell You About Heart Disease, you talk about the ABCT program. Um, and you also talk about a diet which you've developed which sort of blends two of the best diets together, the Mediterranean diet and the DASH-2. Mm -hmm. It's called the um, IDC, sorry, ICD-PPD diet. <laughs> can, you, can you explain what's going on here? Yes, what, what actually, uh, when you look at the, most of the diets that have been out there and studied, um, there have some issues. Uh, for example, the old DASH diet was way too high in refined carbohydrates. So, mm -hmm. I modified that to a lower carbohydrate and made a few other twists. Yep. <clears throat> and the Mediterranean diet has a few things that you want to modify as well. So taking the two together, the best of both of them, so basically what I did is I, I had a very high quality protein that's uh, organic preferably, mm -hmm. and then you use no trans fats whatsoever. You limit the saturated fats and you really load up with monounsaturated fats and omega-3 fatty acids. Um, and then. Uh, Carbohydrates is a very important issue. Uh, refined carbohydrates, in my opinion, are much more important in driving coronary heart disease risk mm. than anything related to the fat story. Yep. Uh, if you look at saturated fats versus refined carbs, refined carbs are always worse right. than saturated fats. Yep. And if you, if you transport the uh, calorie intake per day and you substitute refined for the saturated fats, you can end up with more heart disease, no question about mm. it. So I really, I'm a... I'm a uh, <laughs> Uh, really tough on patients when it comes to refined carbs. I try to get them down to 75 to 100 grams a day right. max. Yep. And that's that's really low. Yep. And then we get a lot of vegetables, a lot of vegetables, different colors. Minimize the fruit mm. because uh, that's fructose and it yep. gets converted right into glucose. So berries are better. You got to watch the glycemic index yep. of the fruits, like bananas and so forth. Yep. Grapes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So those things have to be modified. So it's it's what's within the story. You don't just say, well, eat 10 servings of fruits and vegetables. They say, well. Tell me which vegetables to eat, tell me which fruits to eat. Mm. Tell me how many grams of refined carbs I want to don't go over. Yeah. I, I love um, <coughs> Lise Ausler's um, um, way of putting it. She says, I, I like to eat a rainbow every day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Lots yeah. of these darker and, sort of and, berries. And, and, and if you do the rainbow, you're going to have a pot of gold at the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me more about the ABCT program because something that I really picked up on when I heard you speak at the Institute of Functional Medicine 2012 um, cardiovascular disease and something that piqued my interest was that you said do the um, strength exercising before the cardio exercising. Right. Tell me what's going on there. Yeah, um, <clears throat> We recommend doing um, an hour at least four days a week. 40 minutes is resistance training and that's first mm -hmm. followed by 20 minutes of interval aerobics. Now the reason you do it a two to one ratio and you do the resistance first there's some good studies that show that if you do it that way, you increase your vascular endothelial production of, of nitric oxide and enhance arterial compliance and vascular health. If you do it the other way, you don't get the same benefit. Uh -huh. 
So what other things do you use? What other tricks do you use in the ABCT program? Well, a lot of it's got to do with muscle, which yeah, muscle groups you use. It's using? basically um, a combined uh, resistance aerobic program in the resistance program. So what you're doing is heavy weights mm. uh, with low reps, and then you start to drop the weights and do higher reps. So what you're doing is really a combined program. And, and what you'll find is the muscle fatigue that occurs <clears throat> where you get the lactic acid uh, burn, and that's when you start increasing uh, the beneficial hormones out of skeletal muscle, like interleukin-10 and others, that are anti-inflammatory. They increase uh, growth hormone, they increase testosterone in women, progesterone and estrogen, and they drop the uh, catabolic hormones, uh, particularly cortisol yep. and epinephrine. And by doing so, the muscle becomes really a key endocrine organ in reducing cardiovascular disease. And does that have any action on triggering the activity of brown fat at all? Like, you know, this is raising its head again as a... Yeah, when, when, you, when you do this, this type of program, you enhance fat burning and increase lean muscle mass just by the, the sheer mechanism of the way you're doing the exercise program. What sort of things do you sort of tend to institute first? What nutraceutical supplements do you tend to use first in your patients to say, right, we've got your diet, you're adhering to your diet, you've got your exercise program, what sort of things do you say, let's first act on these? Well, I, I almost routinely put people on omega-3 fatty acids. <clears throat> and uh, the reason I do that is they have so many vast uh, effects on lipids, uh, blood pressure, uh, insulin resistance, and other things. Yeah. Uh, magnesium is also important, CoQ10. Um, and if you're, if you're talking about specific uh, entities, uh, for example, dyslipidemia. Yeah. What I found a combination of radius rice, berberine, and niacin and, and phytosterols really will drop the LDL particle number dramatically. And I can compete with statins as far as the numbers when I do those combinations with all the downsides. And you just decide the same thing with blood pressure. You know, there's there's certain nutrients that will rival drugs yeah. if you know how to put them together. Yeah. I've always been very interested in the work of William Harris with the Omega-3 Index, and um, I, I really think that's going to be a, like a new hero. <laughs> well, we, we, we really measure just, it. Uh, yeah. I mean, everybody gets Omega-3 Index, mm. and uh, no one's normal. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find great improvements, though, on, oh, yeah. on quite um, judicious dosages? Yeah, you don't have to get huge amounts. Yeah. Uh, most people don't get enough in their diet, so it doesn't take a lot of... You know, I use a combination of diet and supplements, but you have to pick really high-quality supplements because yeah. some of the omega-3s are, are, are either in balance uh, or they're full of um, mercury, lead, arsenic, or some other nasty things. Yeah. Mark Houston, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so My much pleasure. for joining thank us you. today. All right, thank you, Andrew. This is FX Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.